Welcome to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst James Early, Seth Jason, and Shannon Zimmering. Guys, thanks for being here. Good Howdy to be with you, Chris. Coming up, we'll talk about the latest earnings news from Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. We'll offer up a few stock ideas and share a few beefs. But we begin with good news, relatively speaking, from a U.S. automaker. On Friday, Ford reported a smaller-than-expected loss thanks to some heavy-duty cost-cutting. Shares were up sharply on Friday, but have still fallen around 40% over the last year. Shannon, what's the takeaway for investors on this? Uh, Stay away is the takeaway (laughs) for investors. I think the dynamic, and it's playing out all across the market, is you know the news was terrible, but it wasn't horrific. And so, consequently, we're really excited about this company. But there's no reason to be excited unless Ford gets a brain transplant. They're not really going to be competitive with smarter uh, uh, international automakers, Honda and Toyota in particular. I don't anticipate that that's going to happen, and so I don't think there's much uh, there there with this story. Yeah, this is a 39% revenue drop, which is always bad news. I mean, the, the analogy I use, Ford is like a stab man trying to run to the hospital before he, he runs out of blood. I mean, it's just waiting for the economy to pick <laughs> that's, up. That, that's quite a visual. <laughs> there's a, Thanks. There's a big dis- distance there. All right. Other big stories this week. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, whoa. I'm sorry. <laughs> Come on. All right. The one time I have something nice to say. Oh, jump and in. To point at these two guys and say, what a couple of idiots. Now, uh, I, I share uh, their bearishness to some degree because I sold my Ford shares and my Ford debt. Uh, had I held them till today, they'd have been back up uh, 100% from where I sold them. <laughs> the news here is better than than the headlines or than my colleagues might, might want to admit, I think, because the, the debt is up because people think, hey, Ford's not going to run out of cash. Ford, I think, is going to benefit from some public goodwill because they're not really suckling at the uh, government teat like the other automakers. <laughs> and the fact that the other automakers uh, look like they're going to be in reorganization sooner may send some customers Ford's way. Now, I don't hold any illusions that Ford is, is really a great, great competitor uh, or th- or that they're the best auto company out there. But I think there's always, every company is worth something. And I think Ford just might be worth more than we give it credit for. In this, the best of all possible worlds. If, if that's your view, let me ask you though. So it, to the extent that they are benefiting from uh, the economic stimulus uh, plan that has a provision that uh, gives a rebate for the, the I don't buy sales that. I don't tax. Bu- I don't buy that's helping at all right now. Well, but the market seems to be looking forward, but what are they looking forward to? And it seems to be a lot of atmospheric information around this Rather, rather than fundamental information. Cost-cutting is nice, but you can't cost-cut your way to You can cost-cut actually more than that, especially if your competitors uh, are going out of business. I think that gives Ford some leverage to come out and say to to other folks who who, who are on the hook and say, hey, you know what? You need to work with us. If so, it's a war of attrition, Ford will be the last to lose. That's the one. Ford, Ford might post a profit by 2011, they say. I mean, is is that really good news? It doesn't matter to the people who hold the equity when it happens if the stock goes up. I cannot believe this is Seth talking. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on. Other big stories this week. We had President Obama leaning on the credit card companies about the interest rates they charge. We had Bank of America CEO Ken Lewis saying he was pressured by the government to complete the deal for Merrill Lynch. And some better-than-expected housing numbers released on Friday. In the wake of all that, James, what's what's the headline that caught your attention this uh, to, week? To me, I can't get over this Ken Lewis and, and being pressured by Hank Paulson business. I mean, this is like something you'd see in North Korea, uh, if, if the rumors are true. <laughs> oh, I mean, come on. It's not that. It's like Soviet Union, not North Korea. <laughs> Dear China, leader. You know, Hank Paulson, who may or may not have been pressured by Greenspan, we, I mean, not Greenspan, uh, Ben Bernanke, the I should beard. correct myself, uh, 
we don't, we don't know, uh, went to, to, to Bank of America. We know they were pressured to buy Merrill to begin with, but apparently Ken saw some things they didn't, they didn't like. They wanted to back out, and they said, oh, no, if you back out, your job and, and the, is gone, the board is out of there, something like that. So if that really happened, I mean, Ken Lewis was kind of sort of a Sophie's choice for him between country and company, and, and, and what does he do? So, so he, he became a patriot, albeit a, a sneaky patriot, uh, we presume, and, and went ahead and bought Merrill Lynch, just keeping really quiet about the bad news. Was it for his country or for his job? We don't know. But we do know that the Bank of America shareholders meeting is coming up very soon. And there are a lot of groups that have a lot of animosity towards Ken Lewis. This is great ammo for them. Yeah, and let's just hope it doesn't turn out like Sophie's Choice. That's quite the grim ending on that. Yeah, I know. Between <laughs> that and the staff man running to the hospital, you're coming up with some great images here. What we have here is a bully and kind of a cowardly toady. So it's really tough to figure out which is the more despicable. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. I'm, I don't put it past Paulson because he wanted out uh, a long time ago. So he was sort of going along with whatever was happening, I suppose. But uh, Bernanke, I find it somewhat surprising, and I'd like to get more of the details uh, around this story. I don't think that it really uh, has much to do with whether or not the government should be more deeply involved with the problem of insolvent banks. I happen to think that they should be, and it looks like, and this is a headline that attracted my attention. But be upfront about it. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm, I, I, full, full disclosure, I think it's a it's a good idea, but there are some things policy-wise that you cannot do directly. You can't take a weak dollar policy directly, and you can't uh, talk about in this country nationalization directly. So you have Tim Geithner, who I've taken some pot shots at, who now now, I think, is gifted in the art of the rhetorical pratfall, talking the dollar down by mumbling and fumbling his way uh, in a direction of a policy that <laughs> is good for U.S. companies at a time when uh, we could use an extra boost. The big story, I think, and there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, noise, but the big story of the week was the fact that the Obama administration is considering converting the loans that they have issued to uh, banks for bailing them out of their situation uh, to common shares, which would be, as one report puts it, a back door to nationalization. Open that door, go through it, clean up those balance sheets and then uh, put the banks back into the capitalist wilds. That's what needs to happen. And I think that now, maybe under the radar, it's going to happen. You agree with that? Yeah. It's the front door, actually. I've been saying all along. <laughs> I've been saying all along, buy the equity, make it clear to everybody, take them over, clean them up, chop them up, get them back onto the market. Seth, what about you? What's your headline of the week? The one that jumped ahead now that you just mentioned is the so-called good news in new home sales. Everybody, the press reports these absolutely <laughs> What's wrong with so-called good news? So-called good news. <laughs> All you need to do is go to census.gov and look at the sales uh, or look at the information that they actually publish on this. This so-called 0.6% drop, you know, better than expected. Anyone out there who's, I don't know, been in eighth grade science probably knows a little bit of something about error bars, margin of error. This is plus or minus 19%. Okay, that's your margin of error. That's why it's so cold. So it could be a twenty percent drop, almost. It could be a, a nearly a twenty percent gain. We don't know. How about we look? And that's from last month. Just you look year over year, you're talking about a thirty point six percent difference to the downside, with a ten point seven percent margin of error. So you're much sure that year over year, this is still terrible news. Don't believe these housing headlines. All of the media out there, I think, is just grasping to be able to say something positive about housing, and we got nothing yet. And the market is buying into it as well. So existing home sales came in a, a bit below expectations. New home sales came in a bit above. But it's all just a bunch of uh, sound and fury. We're still in, uh, if not. A free, well, still in free fall, but a slower free fall. And the market seems to be cheering that. But I'm of the school that says, can't we just get this over with? And like a drunk, you got to hit bottom before you can recover. And so to the extent that we're slowing down uh, the hitting of bottom, that's, that's, a, that's a bad thing ultimately, because we need to be able to bounce back from where we're ultimately going. There's no sign in terms of the macroeconomic data that things are, are, are improving substantially at all. 
Okay, lots of earnings news this week, so let's hit a few of the big names. We'll start with Apple, which reported better than expected earnings thanks to strong iPod sales. Shannon, shares of Apple up around 40% over the last three months. Do you like the stock going forward? Well, and, and, and up about two weeks ago, since I called them out for special mention on this very podcast. I'll, I, I'll, I'm I'll, sure that had a lot to do with it. <laughs> the iPod sales and Shannon Zimmerman's call on Motley Fool Money. Uh, yeah, well, I just want folks to know I can move markets. If I buy something, the market goes down. That's my, <laughs> that's my special knack. Uh, yeah, so a- Apple, uh, good results, great company. I think that the the sort of story behind the story here is the way that analysts are just all they have a big crush and they have for the longest time on Apple. So much so, there's an anecdote in the Times today uh, about the way analysts were reading into the tone of voice that they use on the conference call, and not just oh, did they seem enthusiastic? Did they seem sort of downbeat? It was the tone of voice was enthusiastic. Consequently, hot products must be coming down the pike that we have not yet heard of. <laughs> Kremlinology <laughs> with Apple. It's I've hilarious. Always been worried about about buying this stock even even when I've liked the price because I always say to myself look at all the shareholders <laughs> and, and read what they write and listen to them do you want to be on the same side of the table deal wise is these people who sound really crazy they're like Star Trek convention fans yeah but isn't that saying something about the power of the company if, if it, it brainwashes the but what does it say about the price you're paying you know what I mean as long as they can keep doing it, that's 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 a brand. What, what they what they really should do, I think, is sort of use this as a springboard. All this goodwill and goosebumps that you use this as a springboard into coming up with a, a compelling succession narrative. So Steve Jobs has been off the scene. The company's been quite productive while he's been away. That's a big worry. So everybody hopes that Steve Jobs comes back 100% healthy. Apple anticipates that he will uh, later this summer. Good, good, good. But eventually the guy is going to retire or, or do something else, and they need to figure out a way of uh, taking advantage of what's happened right now and sort of putting out front some folks who are going to be in uh, the, the front ranks of the company after uh, Steve Jobs moves on. Never going to happen. Yeah, Job, may, I, Jobs' ego is too big to give everyone even the even You may slice, be right, and that's, that's unfortunate because it's a bigger company than just Steve Jobs. Amazon.com also reporting better than expected earnings, thanks in part to strong demand for the Kindle. Yeah, Seth, Seth in, your, <laughs> in your face over there. I have a Seth very Jason, tragic you tale the, to tell. You are the biggest Kindle fan I know. So I have shares sold, of by Amazon. By the way, Amazon... I was just going to say, shares of Amazon. Don't you, up, don't you talk over me. Up around <laughs> 60% over the last three months. How, how, how high are they since I pegged them on here? Didn't I talk about them on here? <laughs> moving markets. We're I moving markets with this podcast. Everybody, everybody, everybody everything is up, okay? So, <laughs> so don't read anything into it. No, uh, I, I think I said Amazon look, has always looked kind of crazy expensive to me. They came out with the Kindle. I said, this is really, I think, a game changer. And actually, I saw a little bit of, I think, how the tide is turning on online shopping even more. And I think it's actually, the, the, they are extending their lead. They stopped burning so much cash, which they were always plowing back into uh, into reinvesting in equipment and everything. And so I haven't looked, run the numbers lately, and so I wouldn't say run out and buy it today. But this this doesn't surprise me that Amazon is one of the few outperforming. And the Kindle Kindle is really a great product. My my parents are now doing that. They live in the boondocks in northern Minnesota, and they can still get signal to wirelessly download their books. But is the how much is the Kindle responsible for the the run up that we've seen? Do they give those numbers? I have no well, idea. Well, that's the thing; they don't out. give out hard numbers. Well, on the, the it's sort of interesting. I don't think you know. It's all about what can it do in the future. That there was an interesting uh, tidbit. So an analyst, I think at Merrill Lynch, came out and said that uh, it, here's what we estimate the cost of putting one of these things together to be. And an <laughs> five analyst, cents. It, no, well, <laughs> it, it was actually it, it was under two hundred dollars, but not that far under two hundred dollars. Yeah. And Amazon was very quick to come out and say, Oh no, 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 it costs us much more than that. As the, right. as the, as the the Amazon fetishist over here. How, 
<laughs> How does that help their cause? I mean, do, are they? Is it a concession that they overpaid? Nobody knows what they actually. I mean, people are always the, trying to the, reverse engineer what 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 Apple products cost as well by looking, at, and I don't think they ever have the story. Well, so, but 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 about the Kindle. I mean, how does it serve Amazon? Uh, you know, in terms of uh, driving investor interest in their in their stock and in their company. How does it serve them to say, oh no no no, we paid far more than what you estimate uh, for the cost of building the Kindles, and are, and therefore our our margins, our profit margins are thinner than than. I you don't think. know that that's aimed at investors necessarily. It could be aimed at consumers. Nobody wants to think that they're paying you know a ton over the over the assembly cost, and I think that's why Apple is always you know taking a similar taking a similar stance. Right. Uh, Netflix also reporting better than expected earnings, and now more than ten <laughs> for everyone. More than Yay. ten million subscribers. <laughs> Netflix no longer just about DVDs; it's also about VOD, as in video on demand. On Thursday, we asked Netflix CEO Reed Hastings about the biggest challenge his company faces on the VOD front. We need to spend more and more money with the studios to get more content. Um, so that's the biggest barrier. Is you know it's a uh, uh, spending more money with the studios. They do need more content. I love this service. I uh, get it through my Xbox. Uh, you actually need to run an Ethernet cable to get it to work. The wireless just can't handle the traffic if you want high def. But it is a great service. But the amount of content available is thin. So we still we're, we still get our DVDs. They open it up a little bit more, and this is so they'll be in the unstoppable position. But, uh, Seth, once the content is there, and I, I I believe it will be there, you know, before too long. I mean, aren't there a lot of competitors in this business? I mean, in terms of just the, the technology, I don't think there like are. A coin flip up in the air. Is, in my, Who else is doing like it? Who's Comcast got the deals? Or so, so somebody else. I mean, couldn't couldn't they mount a pretty Those big challenge? Those guys generally only have a certain number of movies available at any one time and it has to do with the way they they've got broadband right so they can only send out you know I don't know how many channels worth of you know movies but you know you've got 10 or 20 or 30 or however many on demand movies because they're sending them still through a broadband channel i mean netflix this is one of their challenges as well they're sending internet packets so they yeah. can they can provide a much more specialized service but it gets to you in a much slower fashion so yes that is competition but it's it's a different kind of competition and i don't believe they're at loggerheads yet yeah, and I, I don't disagree with that assessment for right now, but I do think that uh, Netflix will soon be the new blockbuster. And when that happens, it's going to take the form of uh, wireless connectivity to your television set. And so going from a company that actually is doing something that matters right now and doing it very well, very efficiently, to being a company where it, basically anybody can play. So you're competing against the Hulas, the Juice, the YouTubes of the of the world. And maybe Those e guys wait, can't wait, get wait, the wait, stuff e to the TV e the same way, though. They can't do it yet. But once you're able to have a wireless signal and see internet television on, uh, internet uh, broadcast on your television, then it's a different game entirely, and maybe one that the the studios can actually get into. I think that Netflix is in a fantastic position right now because they're uh, clearly uh, uh, the dominant player in the space and, and doing it remarkably well. And they're in the position of being the chief distributor, which gives them some leverage when it comes to negotiating uh, licensing fees with uh, the the studios. Going forward, though, when it's more of a, a commodity service because everyone can have access to the technology that allows that, the studios themselves are going to be able to compete against. Netflix, and I think that they will be well healed enough to pull that off. I think you're you're vastly underestimating the cost of sending this stuff out in definition high enough to actually work on a big screen TV like most people run. Hulu is a great service, and I've yeah. been a big fan of theirs. But you you watch Hulu on a small screen, and I actually used to patch Hulu through to my big TV with yeah. my computer and back because that's the kind of nerd I am. 
doesn't hold up. <laughs> Neither does Apple TV, and, and, and they, don't, they aren't even streaming wirelessly. Fidelity is going to matter less and less going forward. No, as a whole it, generation no, of people grew up watching matter. YouTube. It's no, gonna, it'll it's absolutely be matter because that TV is 50 inches, and it has to be good. <laughs> and finally, Yahoo's quarterly earnings conference call featured some colorful language from new CEO Carol Bartz. You know, we sort of had a you know one product management person for every three engineers. So we had a lot of people running around telling engineers what to do, but nobody doing anything. And so, excuse me, um, I knew that would slip out one of these times. So, Guys, i got to be honest, this makes me like her even more. She's working blue. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I don't see what the, the big deal is. So. <laughs> nice. Is it wrong that that, that, was, that was uncalled for, I know. Is it wrong that that turned it's me on a little bit? <laughs> okay, but, but should, you know, does the stock turn you on? I mean, yeah, this is all making news because, you know, she dropped the F-bomb Let on me a be conference clear, call. The, but the, the potty mouth that she used and that I just used probably doesn't have a place in conference calls. But what does have a place, I think, at Yahoo, and you and I talked about this back in the old days, yep. the video pod, uh, the video feed we used to do. I don't think Yahoo knew what it was doing, not in a sense of technically or anything. They didn't know what they were. And I think this is what she's getting at, that, that she was in charge of a, country, a company where there's stuff going on and no one really knows why. So I can understand her, fr her frustration. We all say those bad words. We say it here before we're on air, folks, or before we're recording. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Seth. <laughs> ask, <laughs> ask for the outtakes. Probably shouldn't say it, but it actually gives me a lot more hope for, for the company. All right, it's time for What's Your Beef? Time to tee off on a stock, a person, a company, an idea. Shannon, I will start with you. Uh, well, I, I actually have a, a number of beefs, and I'm trying to even now think of the one that I wanted to zero in on, and I guess it's going to have to be Amazon and the Kindle. Oh. <laughs> a recur, a recurring three, theme. You can't have a beef three times. No, I, three times a charm. Okay. Third time's a charm. Uh, just, you know, so my mother-in-law is a big fan, and I've been able to actually uh, use the Kindle. It is a remarkable device. There's no there's no doubt about it. I still think that my iTouch, even though you, it's cramped and it's small and it represents uh, a, a bigger challenge when it comes to reading things, uh, is, is fully functional, and I, and I enjoy that. My, my concern, though, is this is really the iPod of e-books, and, uh, and Amazon is sort of the iTunes of e-books as well. And so in the same way that even like a, you know, a hey, kids, get off my lawn guy like me who grew up listening to full albums, uh, is now a cherry picker of songs. What is this going to do just technolo technologically uh, to the way that we that we read things? There's always sort of uh, a, a way in which technology informs uh, uh, aesthetics. And so, you know, the sonnet form emerged because there uh, was paper that was exactly that size. You all need to remember Shannon's actually an English PhD. <laughs> but exactly. He's got, like, exactly. dusty leather books. That's but what he's getting at, it, right? It, it, that, that, that and just the, the way that technology shapes uh, what is possible and what is impossible. And so now, as Kindle makes it possible uh, to, to read novels instantly, and maybe as a generation of people who grew up reading novels, we do that. What happens to subsequent generations who maybe don't have the sustained interest uh, or the interest that's required to read an entire novel because you can jump so quickly to the thing that you want to read? Uh, what happens? Do things become smaller and smaller and maybe uh, less insightful? Because some s subjects, believe it or not, uh, are uh, complicated and interesting enough that they require an expansive form. Does that form go away uh, thanks to the, the you know massive technology uh, that is being embraced by people who have Kindles like Seth. So, so bound book is to scroll as Kindle is to bound book. <laughs> I, I'll only note that I read, and everybody I know who has a Kindle reads a lot more because of it. I'm not talking about you. Uh, I'm talking about. I'm talking about another dozen people I know. But but people who are 20 years your junior, uh, a fairly large crowd. Yeah, I'm a I'm a geezer, so everybody I know is younger than I am. All right, James. Okay, uh, turn up your volume because I'm going to talk about accounting. 
uh, specifically oh. <laughs> a rule called FAS. I'll, I'll get comfortable. One five nine, and this was this was put out in two thousand and seven. Nobody really talked about it much, but here's why it matters now: is banks are using this rule to record significant additions to their net income, and, and it's a very, very strange rule. And these are the same banks that, that poo-pooed mark-to-market accounting when it came to their, their own assets, you know, when they thought their asset values were too low. But they're, yet they're using this, which is sort of the, the most insidious version of mark-to-market accounting possible to, to, to affect the value of their liabilities. And let me explain very quickly how it works. So if a company issues a bond for $1,000, okay, originally, later on, the company becomes more sketchy. That bond trades down to, let's say, 700 bucks on the open market, they get to add that $300 to earnings, even though the company didn't do anything good. In fact, they became worse. They added this to earnings. Now, the trade-off is, you know, when their bond trades up, they have to take it away, and that's what actually happened to Morgan Stanley. But Citigroup and Bank of America each added uh, $2.7 2.7 and 2.2 billion dollars to the net income recently, thanks to this FAS 159. And for the most part, because no, the media doesn't like to talk about complicated accounting topics. This is just sort of a brush off in the stories. Oh, accounting treatments affected earnings. But, but wait a minute, their earnings were better than expected, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the the companies themselves actually were doing worse than expected, and the bond market is punishing them. So this is bizarre, and this is this rule should not exist in my view. And this is very ironic that it's the same companies that that don't like fair value accounting when it comes to their assets, they actually love it when it comes to their liabilities. Yeah, so that's a serious, grave issue. I'm really glad <laughs> that you have raised it. I have a very serious and grave question. Can you say poo-poo and assets in the same <laughs> paragraph? We like to work blue. All right, Seth. <laughs> I'm going to do one of those hooray things, and oh. I'm even going to do it for, for, for President uh, Obama, or, or B.O., as I call him, which doesn't get me a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of, uh, a lot of happy love mail. <laughs> love mail. But he's taken on the banks, and, and I don't think he's so much interested in making sure that the credit card uh, interest rates are low, although it would be nice if they were, as the fact that they are really scummy about what they tell you about these. And I'm going to tell you a story from, from my house the other day. My wife, uh, bless her heart, and she's, she's pregnant. She shouldn't get upset like this. We got a, a, one of those things we get once a week from Citigroup, City Citibank, with those fake checks inside that are actually a cash advance check on your account. And they say, it's not a check, it's you know a dream, it's a dream wedding, pay off debt. Well, I mean, come on, the cash advance rate is you know in the teens, the only debt you could pay off with this and possibly make any sense is if you owed a loan shark. But unless you have people trying to break your knees at your door, using these things is insane. And this is the kind of practice that has to stop. And I'm actually glad that President Obama is going to lean on these guys. There's no excuse for it. Okay, as we head into the next week, Shannon, give me one stock on your radar. Well, it's not a stock. It's a, it's a, uh, a bond. It's not even really a bond. It's a bond fund. It's Vanguard Inflation. And it's not even a bond fund. <laughs> it's actually a movie. It's a mo- I saw Monsters versus Aliens, and I love it. <laughs> they're, they're nested boxes, and soon I will get to it. Uh, no, it's Vanguard Inflation Protected Securities Fund, uh, which is a fantastic uh, fund managed by a team uh, that includes Ken, uh, Ken Volper, who's a great sort of uh, bond and fixed income guru. Uh, it's, it's a good, very interesting asset class to be in right now because in our you know, vaguely uh, deflationary times, it's a good buying opportunity because I think that we all agree that on down the road, and maybe not even that far down the road, higher levels of inflation are almost inevitable as the lighter fluid of economic stimulus finally lights up and there are more dollars circulating and consequently they are worth less and inflation uh, arrives. And so the securities that this fund invests in are designed to rise in value along with inflation and you can buy them directly, which may be a good way to go, but you can also buy them through uh, this fund, which is a fantastic 
fantastic way to go because in addition to benefiting from the the mechanism that causes them to rise when inflation does, uh, Volpert and his co-manager are quite crafty in terms of making trades and sort of having capital appreciation as a part of, uh, a part of their plan. So in addition to the fixed income payment that you get out of the uh, investment, you also get uh, the, the possibility that they'll be uh, crafty traders, which they have been over time. So Vanguard, Inflation Protected Securities, VIP SX is the ticker. James? I, I got to admit, guys, you, you guys are warming me up to uh, Apple. Uh, you know, this is uh, <laughs> really a strong brand. And if you look uh, at, at the companies that have lasted over time, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, uh, Procter & Gamble has a lot of good brands. I mean, brand is a huge driver of returns. Uh, you know, there's nothing different about, I mean, Coke underperforms Pepsi in, in taste tests, but it's the brand that keeps it going. Um, and, and if Apple can keep this up, granted, that's not a given. Uh, that, that could really mean something even 10, 20 years down the road. Okay, Seth, Jason. All those Roy Rogers investors out there are snickering at you right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, speaking of Roy Rogers, and uh, you know that was a huge chain, everybody, right? I love Roy yeah. Rogers, yes. and it's still around a little bit. But are there any <laughs> equity holders? I, I want to issue a broad. Can I do a broad warning? A broad warning. I don't want to make it sound like that. I just want to note that restaurant stocks have been kind of on a tear lately. At least a lot of the ones I follow. And I'm going to talk about one that I really love. We love it over in the service uh, that I run here at uh, Motley Fool with my co-advisor, and it's Buffalo Wild Wings. And we think this is a great stock. It's a very well-run chain. It has gone up. It has run up a lot lately, trading at 42 and change. And everybody is very excited. And it's not the only restaurant stock that is just trading a little bit richly for my taste. I'm not saying run out and sell all these stocks. But do your homework before you buy into this restaurant stock rally. Because the macroeconomic news I'm seeing does not suggest that everything is OK already. And so a little caution is warranted, not only on Buffalo Wild Wings. Hang on to it, but watch. But on a lot of these other restaurant stocks, do your homework. Okay, Seth Jason, James Early, Shannon Zimmerman, thanks for being here. Good to be with you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of Motley Fool Money. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Do your homework and make your own decisions. Remember, the conversation continues 24-7 at fool.com, and you can check out our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash themotleyfool. I'm Chris Hill. We'll see you next time.